men, one film, and all the action you can handle. On tonight's episode, our hero's eyes turn westward. A former wunderkind has entered the twilight of his career and marshals all his remaining powers to make a massive final bid for control for the town that he loves. The one that made him his fortune, but might have taken his soul. Chris and Jason follow the trail of recreation, mythification, illusion, and illusion in order to finally understand the secret beneath the Hollywood sign. Action, drama, romance, all that tonight on Full Cast and Crew. My name's Jason. My name's Chris. You and I are here to discuss today Quentin Tarantino's 2019 masterpiece, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For the listeners, I want to right off the bat just say that Chris and I are not going to give away any spoilers about the movie. We are going to talk in general about the characters. We will reference scenes that occur in the film, but none of those are going to be spoiling for you if you haven't yet seen the film. I really, really encourage you to go see it in a movie theater if possible, especially if you're just a fan of movies, if you're a fan of movie making, of Hollywood, of the old days, the way things were. If you yourself feel like a dinosaur whom time has passed by, this is a film for you. Which is a lot of us. Chris, I just saw the movie two nights ago. You saw it quite a while ago. I saw it, I think, maybe a week or two after opening. And are you a Tarantino guy in general? I think I've cooled on him a little bit. I think I was at the very beginning of his career. I think some of his mid-stuff didn't hit me in quite the same way. Yeah, sort of goes back and forth. I I wouldn't think of it, I wouldn't call myself a stan for him. You don't stan for QT. I don't stand for QT. What are your favorite Tarantino movies? I think my favorite might be Kill Bill. The thing I like about Kill Bill, which is, It's similar to this in some ways is that there's such an element of pastiche and such a passion for a genre. Well, in that case, it's more a passion for a genre as well as movies and that it works both as a comment on that genre, but an entry into that genre as well. This movie deals a lot with violence as Kill Bill does, though with Kill Bill, it's cartoonish and over Mm -hmm. the top and the excess and storytelling experimentation that it does. That's the one that I think speaks, speaks most directly to me. I think interestingly in this movie, there's a relative lack of violence. And when there is, it's much more impactful as a result. Yes. In a movie like Kill Bill, where there must be 180 million kills throughout the film, you get a little inured to the blood and to the slicing samurai swords and all that kind of stuff. Same thing in a lot of the movies where there's just an excess of violence and that became kind of the shorthand for Tarantino. From Reservoir Dogs. Like I still think, I think that was its, the biggest part of its impact at first. Well, we hadn't seen that sort of playful, gleefully corrupt violence. as the chair scene with the song and the slicing of the ear and all that stuff. That was just done with such lack of caution for you, the audience member, and such authority and assuredness on behalf of the director. There's very few movies where I don't know what the limit of my ability to remain seated in the theater for many more hours, days, weeks, months. I'm not sure when I would have had enough. Uh This could have kept going. I would have followed these people beyond the running time of the film. It's my experience of certain movies that I'm obsessive with. As you know, Blade Runner 2049 was the one most recently I had that similar experience with. This is a movie I could envision seeing three, four, five times because I got that much out of it. And I know that there's that much more in there that I haven't yet unpacked. It's an incredible film in terms of the craftsmanship. And then on top of that, incredible performances, which isn't something, usually get a few good ones in a Tarantino movie. But for example, my favorite Tarantino movie is Jackie Brown. And while I love that film, and while I think it's the best Samuel L. Jackson film performance, period, a couple of the leads in the film are good, but they're there almost 
not only because they're good actors, Pam Greer and Robert Forster, like they're there because of what they represent to Tarantino. Sure. And it's not to say that they're not good and that they're not convincing and they don't inhabit their role, particularly Pam Greer, but they're not there first and foremost for acting is what yes. I mean to say. But this movie I thought was incredibly cast. Everyone was uniformly excellent. I'm a, I'm a Brad guy. Mm-hmm. That's my guy. I'm going to go see a Brad Pitt film. Movie star. Charismatic screen presence. And he didn't disappoint. Yeah. But I was pleasantly surprised by how much I was blown away by Leonardo DiCaprio, who I'm not a huge fan of yes, as an actor. Yes, I think like you, I he's neither here nor there. Though everything that I think I've seen him in, I've loved. Yeah. But uh, because he's so physically recognizable, he is such a movie star. And this is, I've said before, this is why movie stars and stuff don't appeal to me as much because it doesn't feel like it's going as deep. And yet here, and I think partially because of the nature of character that he's playing, there are so many levels to it. And you get to see just how in command of his instrument Mr. DiCaprio is. Do you think by the end of another 50 episodes of this podcast, I'll be using that term unironically? Yes, an yes you will. Instrument. He is <laughs> you a, can only hold out for so long. Since this movie is in theaters right now, there is not a robust EPK, as we say in the business, electronic press kit. The studio has only released an official trailer and one clip from the film. And they chose kind of an oddly specific clip, but yes. not a clip that's necessarily representative. I and mean, this is not a movie where there are surprises around every corner that you need to protect. It wouldn't be the clip I would have chosen. I don't know if you read any of the amount of secrecy that was going on yeah. around the project, partially because of Quentin Tarantino severing his relationship with Harvey Weinstein. And so mm -hmm. it was sort of up in the air. And they went through this whole Baroque thing where representatives from all the studios had to go Physically, physically to, to yes. his agent's place. There is enough in there surprising or different that I can understand them wanting to leave. Sure. And especially somebody like him who loves the showmanship element of movies and wants to leave it as open as possible. Yeah. So it makes a certain kind of sense, though I'm with you. I mean, it's a perfectly nice scene, but- Well, the broad strokes of the film, it's about uh, Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who is very pointedly an actor- a little bit past his sell-by date in Hollywood. He's a guy who came of age in the 50s in Westerns and TV, but has not been able to make the leap to the new Hollywood, represented by Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, and Roman Polanski and Jay Sebring, and people who represent this new wave of cinema. I think one of the reasons why I liked DiCaprio is maybe in an atypical role for him, he's really a fucking mess. And he makes that so compelling, it removes a lot of the vanity because he's having a really difficult time. Sure. I was just listening to Paul Thomas Anderson and Tarantino talk about the movie, and Paul Thomas Anderson was saying, man, when Leonardo wants to, he's just the best fucking comic actor. And Tarantino says, it's even more amazing because in this movie, he's not trying to be funny. He's playing it totally straight, and that's why it's so funny. And that's a great thing when you talk about him as a as a character that's falling apart. But there are some ways that things are still kind of together. Like, it could be a hell of a lot worse. And so one of the great things about his character, like, the easier choice would be that he was completely down and out, a uh, complete mess. No, he's a guy who's still sort of got it together. Yeah. But he has these emotional issues, like you said, transitioning, not only from one type of film to new Hollywood, but it's also TV versus movies. Yeah. TV, as in uh, an interview, Quentin Tarantino was saying, blue collar working actors who sure. were like, this is just a job that you yeah. do and you would love to make the jump. But culturally, you exist in this TV yes. bubble along with New Hollywood. It's also movies taking that mm -hmm. same cultural place. And also social and cultural change happening around him. And he's kind of boldly a white guy of the 50s who turns his nose up or is screaming at hippies. 
So Rick Dalton and his sidekick slash friend, sort of, Cliff Booth, is Rick Dalton's stuntman. Inspired by famous actor-stuntman pairings from Hollywood history, we just recorded Smokey and the Bandit, directed by Hal Needham, who is famously Burt Reynolds' stuntman. I think Tarantino has said that's a part of the origin story of this movie. I read another thing where he said he'd been filming a movie and an actor on the film had the same stunt person for 20 years, and that relationship also inspired this kernel of an idea. We only have a couple things. We'll play the trailer because this is out, and this definitely gives you a flavor for the film. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? <laughs> No, I'm a stuntman. Look at me. So you still direct, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. Line. Cut! Embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people. <laughs> All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. On August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Oh! <laughs> Charlie's gonna dig you. And that gospel group telling you In this town, I can all change like that. Hey! You're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. Among the actors we spy there, Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, Margot Robbie, Emil Hirsch as mm -hmm. Jay Sebring, hairdresser to the stars. Margaret Qualley, I didn't know, is Andy McDowell's daughter. And is a very arresting screen presence when you see her. Yes. And stands out amidst a sea of spacey-eyed... Hippies. You can use hippies. It. I don't know, hippie. Uh, People won't confuse you with Rick Dalton if you start referring to him as hippies. Timothy Oliphant. Luke Perry. In Luke his Perry in his final film role. Dakota Fanning. Bruce Dern as the owner of the Spawn Movie Ranch, which is a very famous location for Western TV shows and films in Hollywood. Mike Moe as Bruce Lee, a controversial turn, uh, which I was just laughing watching that scene. It's filled with joy and appreciation for the caricature of Bruce Lee that we're getting. I don't think it's presented as if it's the reality. It's a flashback and it's somebody's memory. Yes. And so yes, there's already this layer of subjectivity. It's a brilliant scene. Damian Lewis doing a brilliant Steve McQueen turn. <laughs> I thought that was a great and really funny 
and funnily pitched cameo. I was reading that part of the reason either he was given it or people thought of it is a uh, casting director said when he was auditioning for Band of Brothers many yeah. years ago that he looked like a young Steve McQueen. And I have to say, I don't see it. Like, I like Damien Lewis as an actor, and I thought he did great in the role, but I don't see the resemblance in the same way that people would say Burt Reynolds was just warmed over Marlon Brando. That's why I grew the mustache. That I could see. Mm. Tarantino said something interesting about Margot Robbie's performance as Sharon Tate, which was he didn't want Sharon Tate to be a Quentin Tarantino female character. That's why you see her throughout the film doing really normal things. It's not the Sharon Tate that we have an idea of. You think of her as this astoundingly beautiful, glamorous movie star occupying rarefied air. Right. But in fact, if you read about her, apparently by all accounts, she's extremely down to earth, very bright, very sensitive, very warm. And I think to great effect, Tarantino shows her doing a lot of normal stuff, going to the store, going to the movies, and it humanizes her and you care about her. And Margot Robbie said in the roundtable I showed you from Entertainment Weekly that he described her as sort of the heartbeat of the film. Whereas Damian Lewis is doing a comedic impersonation yeah. purposefully. Like totally. he's not trying to be, you I know. I really only meant that like physically. <laughs> but yeah, no, he doesn't. But that's what, that, that's what he's talking about. He's like, yeah. That's a, that's a Quentin Tarantino, Steve McQueen appearance. And what you're saying, the way he described Margot Robbie's portrayal, I mean, that's what makes this movie more than just the cameos and the fun of the recognizable things, is it is so much about where myth and reality meet yes. in a place where that is in real life based about? on making myths. Yes. <laughs> like that's what the real life is. So that overlap shown through her performance in a great way, in the same way that it is with Rick Dalton. That's why it's kind of funny to me watching the movie. I think we're all aware of the controversies that came out when the film was released. The first one was some of Bruce Lee's living family members took issue with the portrayal of Bruce right. Lee, who is presented as a strutting, egotistical cock of the walk who needs to be taken down a few pegs. They had issue with that. And then the other one was, I think some journalists when the film premiered were taking Tarantino to task for the lack of Margot Robbie's character development and right. why wasn't Sharon given more to do and why wasn't her role as important to the film as the two male leads. And to your point, I believe that just completely misses the point, certainly on the Sharon Tate issue. Yeah. I understand. If you're a family member of Bruce Lee, you're, you're not going to be pleased, perhaps. Totally. I mean, but, which is understandable, it, but you know, you're making a fictional yeah, portrayal it, of something and nobody is perfect. Yeah. And then like, as we pointed out, it's a subjective memory it's a subjective of Cliff. Memory, yes. However, I thought Margot Robbie was brilliant in this. Her scenes were so un-Tarantino-esque in a great way that the movie benefited from. And I really did. I think that's a great term that he used of her being the heartbeat of the right. film and checking back in with her. It's funny, before I saw the movie, and maybe some of you listening who haven't yet seen the movie will feel the same way. When I watched the trailer, I remember thinking like, oh, it's almost like he flipped the casting I would expect. Mm -hmm. Where like Brad Pitt is the movie star, and Leonardo is the stuntman. For some reason, that felt like more of a fit to mm -hmm. me, but it's perfect the way it is. Not only does Leonardo embody Rick Dalton and his actorly pathos so hilariously and compellingly, there are great scenes where he's losing it on set in what's presented as a kind of last chance opportunity to kill it in a pilot and continue working and thus be able to continue to employ Cliff, who's kind of, the movie sort of exists kind of through Cliff's perspective, really. Mm -hmm. Even though Rick is the famous one, we're in good company with Cliff, who's got his head on his shoulders, by and large. I was about to say, like, let's not. Uh... <laughs> well, I mean, he's like the moral conscience of the movie. Well, he's always going to do the right thing. 
I mean, that's also a thing that's sort of up in the air. There's some ambiguity about his... His past? Yes, and therefore that feeds into what he does in the present. You're absolutely right that the actions that we do see, he's definitely more laid back, he's easygoing. Yes. But there's this idea of him that we never find out one way or the other about the kind of person he is yes. or was. Remembering that, it it just makes it, me hesitant to say that he's sort of the moral center of it. Because to me, it's less about one or the other and about this symbiotic relationship and the friendship. It is, but I think that in the context of their symbiotic relationship, he's the one who views everything that's going on with what feels like an appropriate perspective. Sure. Rick Dalton has no perspective because for him, it's the end of his life. He's just struggling to hold on to a career. It's really cliff. You can hear yeah. it in the trailer, that calming, reassuring. Maybe let's keep the meal ticket in place because- Cliff Booth is pretty much just hanging on. One of the things that Tarantino, I mean, born and raised in L.A., lifelong obsessive about Hollywood history, wanted to do a story about the different layers of Hollywood. So he wanted to have someone in a Rick Dalton who formerly was up at the top of the pyramid, someone who represented guys like Cliff Booth who are peripheral to the movie industry but essential to it, but basically could work their whole life in the industry and have really nothing right. to show for it. Cliff lives in a trailer behind a drive-in movie theater and his closest companion is a dog. You know somebody <laughs> something wrong when they're close companions. When you're no. close companion, no. And then the third piece being Sharon Tate who's the opposite of Rick Dalton in that she is on the way up. She's on the way up. And she doesn't even understand yet herself what her place is about to be. I've heard some complaints from some people who wanted more plot. Yeah. I never did. Tarantino said he thought about that because he started with the ending and then everything worked backwards to hit that ending that he wanted. And he thought about adding plot in different places, but in the end, he decided to trust the character study would be enough to get us where we were going. And I I think it does because the film has several incredible set pieces, specifically the Spawn Ranch piece. I mean, it's a movie, it's like, it's a movie unto itself. I mean, it's just something I want to watch again. It's this crazy only in Tarantino film world mashup of 60s, 40s, and 50s, and a cowboy movie with an action movie, and just, it's stunning. It's dramatic, it's tense. And it's also very well written. It's so well written. You know, we've talked about the changing of the generations, and I think there's also a demystification of a city built on mythification. And it's not just Quentin Tarantino's mind. Like, this is pretty much true. Yes. In the sense that the Spawn Ranch is a real place. The Manson family really did settle there. Yeah. But you have this scene where Cliff is talking to George Spawn. And the tension in there, I thought was excellent, but it was so well written because you're kind of on Cliff's side, because unless you're a huge- Well, unless you're on the Manson Manson family side. (laughs) But you're on his side. But you also see the kind of limits of him as a person of, and and as a representative of Hollywood as an industry that had left George behind. Yes. You know, when he comes in, he's like, I just want to check up on you. He's like, who are you? have you been for eight years? What do you want to check up on me? Now, these people take care of me. And of course, we know these people are something else. But I think it's unsparing in those details and of, um, I guess, showing the feet of clay of Cliff Mm -hmm. and of Hollywood in general. You see the impulse to do the right thing, but Mm -hmm. also its limits, which are, of course, why he hasn't spoken to George in eight years. The backstory on Brad Pitt's character is that he did some shit in World War II. Green Beret type shit, that he was a phenomenal soldier. As Tarantino says in the DGA podcast, I could write five fucking movies about what Cliff Booth did in the war. Like, that's how far he went in creating this backstory for the character. I think that scene is also incredible for 
the way that the Manson family is presented in the movie, and specifically in the Spawn Ranch scene, has just the right amount of creepy weirdness and dirty need, freaky hippie girls with spacey eyes, and also this militaristic organization that's yep. sort of just beneath the surface that's somehow more scary than the acided out Kind of like, hey man version that we've seen in other lesser representations. Like with Sharon's character, it's in the reality of it that it becomes more affecting. Is it? It's Dakota Fanning who Who plays Squeaky, who Squeaky, who is taking care of, taking prisoner of George Spawn. Captor, lover, friend, caretaker. (laughs) And she is great. And she is the one who, until Cliff goes to the door of the small house where George Spawn lives, all we see is her sitting in an armchair watching television surrounded by a bunch of the other Manson family, male and female. And she's barking orders. Tell me if he does this. Tell me if he does that. Which part of the drive is he in? Where's, you know, and it's just a cool way to do something that both indicates the slightly off quality and also the Margaret Qualley character, Pussycat, who lures Brad Pitt's character to the ranch. She's incredibly attractive and comely, but she also exudes a certain dangerous, unhinged quality that a lot of the peripheral Manson characters have. Part of that is added to by the contrast we see her in relation to Brad Pitt's character. And even though he's not in a suit and tie, Mm -hmm. he is still a representative of this older, different way. And you see both the appealingness of the hippie lifestyle, but also the kind of disdain for it. There's also a wonderful scene between the two of them and the car as he's driving up yeah. with her to Spawn Ranch. These are both not the main characters. It's not Rick Dalton talking to Charles Manson. It's these <laughs> two people on the periphery, but both representing these two sides of the generational mm-hmm. divide. And also kind of showing how close maybe we were to just having it tip one way or the other. That's kind of the thing here. And I think that's the teetering brink that the country probably felt like it was on in 1969. Yeah. I will say also, I think it's the most effective use of Lena Dunham in a film She is sort of the de facto female leader of the troupe and I think is used quite well. It is a piece of stunt casting. Totally. But it's done really effectively and not at her expense. The joke could have been on Lena Dunham by Quentin Tarantino. A small role and she... You don't focus on her. You could easily, if you didn't know it was her, you could easily forget the role entirely. One of the cool things about this movie, about the cameos and the different real people that Mm -hmm. are shown, is you get a sense of, the way I would put it, a shared universe, like a comic book story that all of these people were inhabiting the same place at the same time, that there would be overlap. Uh, Steve McQueen would be at the same party with- (laughs) Mama Cass, Michelle Phillips. The Mamas and the Papas. The Mamas and the Papas. You get a sense of this whole world. And the very fact that this peripheral character is played by somebody recognizable just shows like this- person could have their own story. Yes. Just as every, all of these people could have their own yes. story, which is, of course, what, what Hollywood is all about. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Let's play another clip. This is the only clip that's been released. This is a scene where Rick Dalton has a gig on the 
I believe this is the, he's got the gig on the pilot, or is this a different piece of work? He's wearing like a tuxedo or something. It, it is a flashback, and it confused me too. He's oh, this got is the a gig. flashback to why he's not working on the show Rick is on. Right, because I he, got it, okay. When uh, Cliff yes. asks, you know, do you think you can get me a stunt job yes. on this Lancer show? Yes. It's like, it's the same ca- the same stunt guy from the Green Hornet, so we're flashing back to the film. Right, so there's Hornet. some bad blood between Cliff and the stunt coordinator played by... What's his name? Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. I'm just looking for his name. Randy, the stunt coordinator. So Leo and Brad are talking, and the reason Brad isn't working on the show is because it's Randy. And so Brad has this flashback to a whole scene, which includes the Bruce Lee sequence and is kicked off by this conversation. Hey, Randy. (laughs) Well, so you're still with Rick, huh? Still here. You in there? Yeah, just knock. Just, just look, just, just just put them in the wardrobe, all right? What's it gonna hurt? Then if you need them, you got them, all right? <laughs> then I gotta have a conversation with that wardrobe assistant, and man, she's a bitch. I just don't, right, please. Look, I, look Randy, I, I'm asking you to help me out, man. If the, if the answer's no, the, the answer's no. Not, not no with excuses. Hey, man. This ain't a Andy McLaughlin picture. And I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys that smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might use them. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, hey and, and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me. But, but, but that, that's not the case, and you know it. He, he's a great match for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. Th- th- throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a... Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just he's happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. It's so good. Paul Thomas Anderson said he's just been walking around for weeks since he saw the movie saying that line over and over and over again. I don't dig him. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings onto the set. And then we have a flashback as to what he's referring to. Yes. Which we won't spoil. Man, Leo's so good. Going back, it, it was a reminder that he has a little bit of a stutter, which yes. is never commented on no. in the script. Yep. And he doesn't make too much of it. Like, it's just enough in the background, not to justify his insecurity, because I think there's plenty going on with the life changing stuff like that. But it his consciousness of it, like it, yes. it seems, and it seems like such a great choice on his part that is peppered in and done so It subtly. puts us on his side because you yeah. know it becomes more prominent when he's under duress. And it adds a certain element of respect because, you know, he doesn't do it when he's shooting. This is a hobby horse of mine, which is uh, how actors are not only seen in popular culture, but in general. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I do love about this movie and the way that it treats acting and actors mm-hmm. as a profession and a people is that it does allow them a little bit more dignity it than does. I think they usually get. He's a fading TV star on a Western who has this opportunity to change his life and stuff like that. And there's a scene on set with this young girl. Yes, great scene. Literally like eight years old. This is another one. I think Brilliant. it might even be better than the Spawn That's Ranch why scene. he's going to get nominated for an Academy Award, yeah. that scene. Yeah. And the acting that follows it. Yes. When he's on set and delivers. It's the fact that he is allowed to deliver. And it's not like he's nope. just a drunk who has no talent or anything like that. No, there's a deep well mm-hmm. of soulfulness to him that we see in this scene with this young girl. And he That's doesn't always access it because he just thinks of this as a job as opposed to an art. And this young girl is much more of a professional. And you do get to see that there is something to him. And when he is focused or when he wants to or when he feels confident enough, he can access. Yes. And so that little 
I don't want to say victory. Yeah, that little victory, I really like the character for that. His problems are his own fault, and yet you don't dismiss him completely because there's something there. To your point, the reason why the movie avoids the trope of being full of bullshit about acting and it as a profession is that we're seeing the characters from inside the bubble. Yeah. We're not looking at what we want stars to be or what we want the mechanism to be. Rick Dalton on set next to a precocious eight-year-old who is already 50 times the professional he'll ever be. He's reading a pulp Western paperback that's folded over. Tarantino has to have the exact right type of old paperback with like the red tops of the pages. And he's not an intellectual. Yeah, He's reading this cheesy pulp paperback and describing to the precocious eight-year-old the plot of the story. And when I tell you, you're going to watch the scene and cry with him because he breaks down in it. It's amazing. And it's that thing that doesn't put a highfalutin nature on what it is he's doing, but it treats his fear and pain real because yeah. it is real to him. Well, sure. And look into the, whoever wrote that dime store paperback novel, Yeah. depending on how you look at it, the movies are just a piece of entertainment. Why are you complaining? Yes. Why are you pretending? Or you can have some actual heart in it. And what's mm-hmm. great about this, and I think what's so generous about Tarantino's way about this changing of one world to another, he's not just saying that the old dinosaurs are useless and have nothing to them. Right. There is a sensitivity, even if some of it is hackneyed, there's a sincerity that is, it was a very generous way to view that. Let's listen to a little of DiCaprio talking about his character, Rick Dalton. And Leo, tell us about, about your character in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well, it was, it was uh, interesting to play this sort of guy that uh, is, in a way, r- reached this expiration date, culturally. And the 60s have come along, and as Quentin eloquently you know, puts in the movie, he's, a, he's, a, he's an actor that has spent his career combing his th- hair and, and, and creating a pompadour his whole life. He's, that's what he knows, and he's not making this sort of transition into this new era of Hollywood. And... He's also feeling sorry for himself. He's a working actor, but he, he kind of missed out on that, op, that television to film transition that actors like Steve McQueen did, where they were able to make that jump and have these sort of amazing careers. He's, he's stuck in this rut. And, you know, it, it's, what's, so, what's so interesting is, you know, Quentin puts all of this in the sort of two-day time span. And he gave this amazing backstory to all of us. But so much of these characters and what they're going through emotionally in this transition that Rick Dalton is going through, accepting his sort of fate, but also realizing that if he gives a little more and tries a little harder and stops feeling so damn sorry for himself, there, there are some possibilities out there. But what was so great was, was to be able to have all that knowledge and all that wealth of our backstories in this two-day life time span. He's so right. How is it that we feel we know the entire arc of all these characters? But the action that we're seeing is all in a two-day span. It's just good writing. You know, you get the significance of everything. You know, the movie opens with him having this meeting with Mr. Schwartz, played by Al Pacino. (laughs) Not Schwartz. Not Schwartz, Schwartz. Love that. That is such a great scene, too. It's a great scene where you learn a lot about where he is in his life. It recontextualizes Mm -hmm. the thing that he is about to do. So, yeah. All of these, I mean, it sounds so dumb to even say because there's no better way to put it except it's just good writing of picking up what are the real things that these people really would do. And you pick the illustrative examples Mm -hmm. that will illustrate multiple things at once. Yes, It's such a reminder of what a great director he is and a great writer. And you remember why in the 
mid to late 90s. Mm-hmm. He was frigging everywhere, and he did change certainly Hollywood, but I'd say sort of world The true cinema. foe of his time? Kind of, yeah. I mean, he blew up the conventional language, or rather drew from this pulpy side of it and gave that as much artistic importance totally. as the artistic stuff. Like Truffaut and, and Godard, he was a film fan. Yes. Again, not from like the Academy. He was not a critic the way I think one or both of them were, but somebody who worked, famously worked in a video store yes. and just watched a lot of movies. He told Paul Thomas Anderson that when he sat down and started writing the screenplay, he was like, oh, this is what all that has been for. He was pissed off when he first saw IMDb because he was like, wait a minute, I spent my whole life accumulating <laughs> that now and now any idiot with a computer can access it? Because you can imagine he used to be the only guy who would sure. go, oh yeah, Sam Rattan was on this and this and this and this. And you'd be like, whoa, what the hell? Yeah. He's still that guy when you hear him talk. Audio-wise, that's a whole other layer. Because he grew up in L.A. and because he was six or seven years old in 1969 when the movie is set, he says he has these real memories of driving around and how you listened to the radio then. When it came to 1969, I was like between six and seven years old. And um, and so the film became a big memory piece. And, you know, a big part of my memory of Los Angeles at that time is being in the car with my stepfather, being in the car with my mom and driving around and listening to the radio playing all the time and how we listened to the radio back then, which is different than the way we listen to the radio now, where you just, you know, you, you kept it on one station. You didn't move around looking for songs. And then when the, the commercials played, you played the radio really loud. And when the commercials played, you didn't turn the radio down. You just talked over it, over the already loud radio. And, uh, and I, you know, I remember the bus stops advertising the you know, uh, 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 the rerun shows that are on the local te- television stations and the movie posters and the, you know, Diet Right, RC Cola uh, billboards, all that kind of stuff. That's what I remember. In fact, there's even, um, my stepfather drove a Carmen Ghia, uh, like uh, Cliff's character drives. And even that whole shot where you see Cliff driving by those signs, I'm like, well, that's pretty much my view, looking up at my stepfather in the Carmen Ghia as he drove around Los Angeles, me looking up at him like that, an angle very similar to what we had with Brad. So it's like, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, so uh, in the same way that Jackie Brown, I think, has the, the kind of me trying to capture the South Bay of the 80s. And that's an important layer to this movie, I think. That gives us such grounding in place. In a very personal way. Because, yeah. you know, all of my reactions, all the things that I was thinking about had to do with what it means thematically and thinking of it very deliberately. And not that they're not deliberate, but they come from him just because this is who he is. Mm-hmm. They're part of this started as a memory piece. It's so high concept. Mm-hmm. I would think of like, oh, you know, it would be great is if we did yeah. something about this time, yes. this changing era. But no, he happened to live through it. I mean, it wouldn't occupy the place in our imagination that it does mm-hmm. if there wasn't some reason to it. So somebody who was there yes. just relaying the events, you get those resonances. The other throughout the entire movie resonance I want to cite is the hilariousness of the comedy. There are brilliant comic scenes all the way through, including where you would least expect. And my experience in the movie theater, there was a lot of laughter, uh-huh. a lot of clapping. People were like viscerally having an experience. It's a full movie experience. There were people clapping, there were people laughing. And then during some serious scenes, there were, you could not hear a pin drop. Yeah. People were with it. And that to me is always the mark of like, are the people with the subject matter as it unfolds on the screen? And when Rick Dalton does deliver the goods in a scene with the little girl, man, it's yeah. so real and so great. And yet all the kind of behind the scenes stuff is not too inside baseball. Thinking a lot of a scene I love, just a throwaway scene. I'm thinking of the scene where 
So Cliff drives Rick around because Rick has had too many DUIs and lost his driver's license. So Brad Pitt's character has to drive Leo's character everywhere. And there's a scene where he brings him back to his house, which his parking spot is indicated with half (laughs) of a billboard from a movie that he was once in. And Rick kind of shyly asks him, he did an episode of a show called FBI, which is a real show. My episode FBI is on, I thought maybe it wanted, it's like almost like he's asking a girl into the house for the first time. And Cliff reassuringly says, that's why I got the six pack in the back seat, buddy. I thought we'd order a pizza and go check it out. And then I love the scene of the two of them watching the FBI episode. It's what people do inside when they're kind of talking about something that they have experience of. And there's just these little offhand comments where Leo's like, this guy's a real prick. Yeah. And Leo executes a little jump out of a truck and, and Brad's like, hey, great spin there. Because I was saying, nice he's spin. a stuntman. He's, a stunt so he's like, hey, you did your, you know, yeah, good for you. Yeah, like, good, good world there. They're like, oh, this guy's such a nice guy. Yeah. Great guy. That's what I respond to most about showbiz stuff is stuff that just acknowledges that wherever you are up down the ladder, most people love it. That's the kind of moment that's represented in that scene. Funny piece of trivia about that FBI episode. Not only, like you said, FBI real show, real episode, real credits, except Leonardo DiCaprio's character is CGI'd in for the credits. So that role was Burt Reynolds. Oh, it was Burt Reynolds, It was actually right, Burt yes. Reynolds. Um, and Burt Reynolds was famously supposed to be George Spahn. But unfortunately, Burt passed away. And so Bruce Dern more than capably steps in. It's hard now to think of that being Burt um, uh, another funny, just when yes. you were talking about like living that life and enjoying, loving, being a part of the movies and stuff like that. My brother was pointing this out and I think this was so true. The scenes where Leonardo DiCaprio's character is filming the Lancer yes. episode. Yes. You have two sections of the actual filming. Yes. Sort of pre-lunch, post-lunch. <laughs> and the post-lunch yes. is where he really has the victory. But in both cases, oftentimes when you see a scene about something being shot, yeah. you'll have the cameras yes. in there and all that. This is not. Why do you think they did that? Well, tell the listeners what they did. What they, they did is know. it really filmed it like it was a movie. This TV show would not have looked as good yeah. as the recreation right. that Quentin Tarantino did. You don't have the cameras in the foreground mm-hmm. or any cutaways to the director or anything like that yeah. to sort of break the scene. What you do have is Rick Dalton yeah. sort of living you have the subjective experience of how he must feel. Mm. This pilot episode of a TV show that at the time had not been picked up, yeah. in some ways it's a workaday janky thing, and yet his feeling of it, because of how heightened his feelings are, are more like a huge yes. movie. Yes. And all of those elements, the cameras and everything like that that goes into the making of it, they all sort of disappear. Mm-hmm. So we are in the same fantasy that he is in, yeah. both he himself seeing his career survive, as well as he himself as a professional who has to create this world. And I didn't think of it until my brother had mentioned it. It's so effective. And it also makes for some great comedy in the sense yes. of- Because uh, they do one- break that when he goes up. But when he goes up, we don't cut to the director. You just hear the the lines yelled from off screen. And you see his pain and terror at breaking and not knowing his line. And Timothy Oliphant does like in the corner of the screen, does like kind of a take that it's just, it's so funny, but it's so effective. And again, so, so different than than this kind of scene normally is. is shot. I would love to hear Tarantino talk about why he chose that because you could also see Tarantino getting really into recreating the style of TV directing that would have been realistic for the time. Like you could see him getting meticulous about those types of angles and cameras. But I think you're right. It adds such a realness to that otherworldly feeling moment. And it's a match for the emotional payoff that you get. Although I found myself thinking like, it's too good for TV. Listen, that's exactly what I thought when you showed me that uh, Donald Pleasance on Columbo. (laughs) And another choice like that that I thought was cool was keeping Manson largely out of the entire movie. In fact, I just noticed, unless I missed it, in the trailer, the only time we see Charles Manson is when Brad Pitt is 
spoiler alert, ladies, shirtless on Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio's roof fixing his aerial antenna. And Manson pulls up in an ice cream truck right. looking for the entrance to the Tate Polanski house, which used to be I Terry Melcher and Dennis Wilson's house right. from the Beach Boys, because he had a tangential connection to the Beach Boys wannabe musician. And in the trailer, they show Manson doing a tip of the cap and a wave and a smile to Brad Pitt's character. But I don't think he even does that. I think Brad is observes him always from the roof, and Manson never notices that he's there. Yes. So I wonder if that might have been something that they shot and either cut out of the movie or had more Manson and then got away from it. I think they have that shot later. Do they? That shot when he does the tip of the hat, that's to Sharon over Jay's Oh, so that's in this right. scene, he comes, that's he goes right. to the back that's of the right. house. Sharon Tate is home. Jay Sebring is there, and Jay goes out to confront this guy who's like, "Hey, what are yeah, you what doing, are you doing here? here?" Yeah, and they have a little conversation. You're right; that is what it's from. But yeah. that's it, and that's that's a good choice. When you talked about wanting to have more plot, well, I don't want it to have more. Plot. No, no, rather, or people yeah. wanting it to have more plot. I think I went in expecting the Manson family, and from the way the trailer is shown, I yes, but I kind of thought that's where it was going to go, and I I love the fact that I was surprised by. Yes. This just being one more element. The movie remains original throughout the entirety of its running time and will flip your expectations around in a way that you will find aesthetically pleasing. Yes. Just to give equal time and also because it's pretty fucking cool, again, just to listen to Brad Pitt talk. <laughs> this is a little of Brad Pitt about his character. Well, tell us a little bit about, about your character. Uh, just that, you know, they... They come from this era when, when uh, an actor and a stuntman were, had a greater partnership and had more uh, say on what, what was going to be in the film, you know, what, what, the, uh, what would take place in the scene. And, um, and at this point, we're on the tail end. I say we because I'm on his coattails. <laughs> My, I have a job if, if Rick Dalton has a job. And if Rick Dalton doesn't have a job, I probably don't. But I've been, he's, he's, he's kindly hired me to you know, work odd jobs. And so I am, um, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing whatever he needs. And you have one of the film's most, you, you, there's like almost like a five minute sequence where you feed a dog essentially, which doesn't sound that exciting, <laughs> but it's the best pet feeding sequence since, <laughs> uh, since uh, the long goodbye, basically, when, when he's getting the curry brown cat from, food. From Morris, from, yeah. uh, but what's that like to read? I mean, was that fun to do? Was that, you know, because it's just you and a dog in a trailer. I, I cannot take any credit for that. <laughs> um, it's a very, you know, again, Quentin's constructed this two days in a life or what becomes two and a half days, I guess, yeah, yeah. ultimately. But two days in a life of these characters at different stratus um, of their of their careers and, and, and life in Hollywood. Even these guys, two of the biggest movie stars in Hollywood, I mean, they love it just the same way the characters do. And they have memories about the movies. And, and of working in the industry. Yeah. There's a, a part later in the interview where they talk about where Brad Pitt says specifically that he, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Quentin Tarantino hit at yes. around the same time. So they've known each other now for 20 plus years. Yeah. This is the first time I think Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio have been in the same film. Mm -hmm. But they know each other socially because this is an ecosystem where people yeah. know each other. I know we ended up cutting it, but there was like the fact that, what was it, Sean Connery and somebody else were like good friends. I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, but somehow they had met. Strange you know, it, bedfellows. Strange yeah. bedfellows. And there's something like, something like that both yeah. in the film itself, but also the way that, that these people in a, you know, a relatively 
casual conversation, like it comes up of like, we've lived this kind of life together uh, and grew up together. And also there's a great anecdote where Leonardo talks about being in a scene with Luke Perry, Luke Perry's final appearance in a movie. And it's a great story because this is exactly what you're talking about in terms of the ecosystem and how what you assume to be true isn't always the case. And he talks about how for him, for a kid who grew up watching Luke Perry on Beverly Hills 90210 and the hype that was around Luke Perry as the next James Dean, that's what he was. And he was a big deal. And even though Leonardo DiCaprio in the ecosystem of Hollywood is a much bigger deal than Luke Perry, when he showed up on the set, he was still intimidated by the fact of like, oh shit, that's Luke Perry. I'm reminded of an anecdote that Danny Bonaducci tells about David Cassidy from the Partridge family. Uh When they were doing the Partridge family, David Cassidy was a massive star around the world, almost a Beatles level star, as insane as that sounds. That's the hysteria (laughs) that surrounded David Cassidy at the time. And of course, Danny Bonaducci was just a young boy appearing in the Partridge family. And they were doing a thing on the Today Show like 15 years ago, which was like getting the Partridge family back together again. And Danny Bonaduce said, even that day when David Cassidy walks into the room and David Cassidy had been down on his luck or had this or had that yeah. or had all these kind of things going on, he's like, my heart still stops because for me, he's still that level of a famous person. Yeah. And I still go in my head, holy shit, that's David Cassidy. And Leo has a little bit of that with Luke Perry, which is hilarious. Yeah. Lancer, the show that they're doing the pilot oh, for, so good. Uh, like FBI, it's a real episode, it seems, that they were showing. Yes. So the characters both that Timothy Oliphant and uh, Luke Perry play are real actors who had been the actors on this show. Mm-hmm. The episode that they were, they seem to have been mimicking, it was Joe Don Baker. Joe Don Baker. Would have been the Rick Dalton And the director, role. brilliant cameo from Nicholas Hammond. The first live action Spider-Man. The first live action Spider-Man. I knew you would. When I, when I, when I heard that, I was like, oh. Oh, I was looking uh, for, I couldn't go. wait to throw it in. Is there a clip? I mean, is there oh, a clip I can of, find a, of, oh, of Nick? Hey man, I don't want to mess with you. Open the door, would you please? I'm not feeling well. I'm not feeling so well myself. Excuse me, I'm in a hurry. Look, I'm coming home from a masquerade party. Now, don't get scared. You don't even have pockets in that suit. Well, I'll pay you at my house. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm not taking no Spider-Man to that part of town. So he's under a mask, or? I mean, not all the time. You know, you see some Peter Parker and some swinging okay. bell bottoms, but yeah. <laughs> He does a brilliant turn as the director of this pilot. Hilarious acting tips for Leo. Sam Wanamaker, real director, also a real actor turned director, real Shakespearean actor. So throwing the Hamlet reference comes by it, honestly. And it's also in the trailer, people who've seen at least the trailer, he's got his hair kind of puffed up in the big sunglasses. He looks almost like a caricature of Bob Evans. he does. At the same time, like with all of these characters, he's a good director. You know what I mean? Like, and the scenes they show in the trailer, you think it's going to be like a goofy part, but no. That's the job, man. They, you got to hype up the guy and get him where you want him. But you have both elements of it. He yeah. is both he's comical doing a, he's, yeah. as well as a, a real character and a real director. The other fantastic scene is the scene where after breaking and going up in the scene you're talking about and forgetting his lines, Leo is back in his trailer throwing a fit and having an argument with himself in the mirror which sounds kind of trite, but is really powerfully and hilariously played at the same time. Not if you've been there, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
he's swearing at himself. And there's a part of this interview where the guy asked him, like, was it hard for you as actors <laughs> to portray that sense of self-doubt and fear? And they all just start laughing. Yeah. They're like, any actor will tell you the ease with which we can get to that place. Yeah. And of course it's true. They're just human beings like everybody else. But the way he argues with himself in his trailer oh, is so fucking so good. Mocking his own stutter. Mocking his own stutter. Threatening himself. Threatening himself. Blame. I will oh, fucking yeah. kill you, you fucking alcoholic. <laughs> you don't fucking stop drinking. When we get home tonight, I'm going to blow your fucking brains out. Cut to him drinking from his flask. <laughs> Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two Different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. I think Leo definitely deserves an Academy Award nomination for this film. Quentin Tarantino definitely deserves at least two. And we could be entering a time where it's time to give Brad Pitt an Oscar for something. Has Brad ever won an Academy Award? I think he was nominated once, I think for 12 Monkeys of all things. Let's see. Does he have Yeah, any? Brad, Brad Pitt, like Leonardo DiCaprio, also surprisingly funny. Not one of the Coen brothers' best, but Burn After Reading, his performance in that was so... Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yes. I mean, I'm a sucker, especially because he's, you know, such a handsome guy. Yeah. But like committing to the goofiness and not winking at it, but playing it somewhere like straight. Brad's been nominated uh, for great. Best Actor two times for Curious Case of Benjamin Button and Moneyball and Supporting Actor in 12 Monkeys. And as a producer, won Best Picture for 12 Years a Slave. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten yeah. that he was a producer. And was that. nominated for Best Picture for The Big Short. He was in Tree of Life. His performance in that I thought was incredibly moving. I haven't seen that. People don't all love Terrence Malick, but that's mm -hmm. probably his most well-known, or at least the one that most people saw partially because he and Jessica Chastain. What's great about it is it's a character that could easily have just been kind of a villain, and yet Brad Pitt brings so much sort of humanity to it. And there are a lot of scenes that go back and forth, and you actually see the sort of good times. Mm -hmm. And I found it very heartbreaking. And actually, it's, a, I think, a beautiful, like thematically what it comes to. Yeah. Though it takes a couple of viewings to actually understand it. It's worth it. I love True Life. Apparently, Brad says he's going to abstain from campaigning for Oscar nominations for the film, probably much to the chagrin of <laughs> Quentin Tarantino and his producers at Sony Pictures. But Oh, but Leo is like, now. Brad, I think also one. this is the first screen performance from Brad Pitt in a time when he has acknowledged in a recent New York Times interview that he got sober. And I'm pretty sure that between this and Ad Astra, which I haven't seen yet, I think these might be the first two screen performances from Brad as a sober person. I did feel, I may be just completely putting this on the film performance, but I did feel that he was present in this in a way that felt different from some of his previous performances, which I still liked very much. There's a lot of humanity in a lot of the, the portrayals in this movie. And his particularly is such a, a warmth and a kind of winking kindness. And I felt secure with him. I felt safe with him in some surroundings in the movie that were often a little bit manic or out of control. Tarantino says that of all the actors he's worked with, Brad Pitt is the one actor that when he looks through the viewfinder, it looks to him like it's on a 70 millimeter screen. There's just some quality that he has. He's the one person where it looks like a movie. He's uh, a fucking movie star. But in this movie, even though he's clearly the supporting actor, it's such an instructive thing that 
Leo can't do what he's doing in the movie. His character can't do what his character is doing in the movie without really the support of Brad and Cliff. Yes. He's the foundation of what's going on. He's the one that we feel okay with in this uncertain time, even though he's the one most close to peril, really. I mean, the guy lives in a pretty rank trailer and doesn't have two dimes to rub together. On the other hand, doesn't have too many uh, expenses. <laughs> he doesn't have too many expenses, but like when- Cigarettes and dog food. When at the end, uh, when just before the end of the movie, they have a great scene where Rick has to tell Cliff that he comes back from Italy. He's been in some pretty bad spaghetti Westerns. He comes back from Italy with a new Italian wife and he's coming back. But, you know, now someone else is living in the house and the plan is to sell the house. And uh, I can't can't really afford to keep you on anymore. It's a really poignant scene, and Leo plays it with the uncomfortableness of someone who doesn't know how to have an awkward conversation. Very much like uh, inviting him in to see FBI. Yes. I mean, he is the most, yeah. and, you know, Cliff is just <laughs> as cool here. Like, he is. I mean, I guess that's why, you know, yes, there's the potential. He really is close to who knows what he's going to do, and yet yeah. he has a certain quality to him that he's like, I'll do whatever. Like, I'm a stuntman. I've and I've been in World War II and seen and committed yeah. atrocious heroics. This this is all just exactly. whatever. Uh, a theme to this movie, we talked about how one generation is giving over to the other in Hollywood and mm-hmm. in American culture. So too, it sort of seems like this boyish friendship is kind of breaking up because yes. the, you yeah. know, to use just sort of um, heteronormative signifiers and stuff, Brad Pitt is now- <laughs> you Millennial know, alert. Uh, Do we have a sound effect for that, Matt? Sorry, Jason, I got nothing. Leonardo DiCaprio is now married. You know, he can't be running around, yeah. drinking with, you know, like there is something about that element too. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd mentioned that that before this is the Italian sojourn. And this is such a, again, for people who like films and stuff, sure. there's a like a five minute sort yes. of, this is what happens when, uh, when Rick, goes Rick goes to, to Italy. Italy. And it's so fun. And it the recreation great. of posters. Uh, and you know, those are those movies are so close to Tarantino's heart. Yeah. And all the posters are from his own collection, by the way, in, in Rick's home. All the film posters oh, right, are yes. Tarantino's own film posters, of course. And I think I heard, I don't know if this is true, I think I heard this is either right now or soon to be his highest grossing feature. Yeah. And that's kind of great news for fans of big studio movies like this, which yes. they don't really make movies like this. Right, a piece of original content by an adult director yeah, starring so adults. Lifetime gross, this is, Django is $162 million. This is already at 137 million. Mm-hmm. I guess it had a wide release. I mean, it didn't feel like it became a pop culture thing, you know. But I think because it came out in the summer, which I'm not sure why it was a late summer. I guess because it's a, it's set in the summer. I don't know. Does Hollywood think about that when they release movies? I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I know they definitely think about what the releases. But I know also, they think a lot about when to release well, them, but I do it's know, sort of like, doesn't this feel more like an awards season release to you rather than a July 26th release? Oh, I see, right. And why release it early, right? Because I know they had screened it in Cannes, I think it yes. was, and actually there were some pieces still missing. The oh, famous really? eight-minute standing ovation that it got, yeah. what was released was slightly longer. I think specifically oh, okay. there's a scene where Rick Dalton is fantasizing about being in The Great Escape. Yes, when that is a great scene. But that wasn't done. <laughs> that wasn't done. Because yeah. of just the, the technical yeah. side of it. So that wasn't in there, a couple other little things like that. Tarantino's biggest opening opened to 41 million. That's almost 10 million more than the second best opening that he had had. And as you said, it's the first movie he's ever made without Weinstein and Miramax. Yeah. So, I mean, it's good news for fans of movies like this that are not related to comic books. 
No offense. None taken. But that's a huge amount of money for what now, unfortunately, feels like an old-fashioned Hollywood movie. Yeah. When I was watching this movie, I felt like he made it just for me. I was so immersed in it. I can't wait to see it again. Yeah. It was funny. We were, so I went with a couple friends and afterwards we're talking about it on the way out of the movie. And there's a kid in front of us with his date. And, you know, they were probably late twenties. Like he kind of looked like your classic film nerd egghead. And he's rattling on about the movie to his date who has seemed remotely interested, but not really <laughs> that much. And um, it was his pick. It was, it uh, was yeah. definitely his <laughs> pick. And I'm not sure whether this was the last date, but uh, I said to one of my friends, like, I can't wait to see it again. And he turned around and said, this was my third time. And I kind of caught her eye. She was like, rolled her eyes. Uh, so film nerds out there, this is your time. <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> Highly recommend it. Please go see it. I yes. can't wait. To, are you going to see it again or is once enough? Well, Were you a multiple goer? I'm not always a multiple goer. Uh, this one I did see, I have seen twice. Oh, you saw it twice? Yes. All oh, right. And I did enjoy it much more the second time because I will say the one negative thing that I heard was Jeff was mm-hmm. saying that he thought it was sort of boring. Yes. Places. What does he and know? I, exactly. He's a Jets fan. So he, uh, Actually, no, he does know boring <laughs> as a Jets fan. <laughs> Boom, so maybe nailed sh- it. And I could see, you know, there were parts that were slow and would not be for everybody. I mean, another part of- Did you feel, I mean, I felt, what is it, two hour, 45 minute running time? I never felt like it dragged. In fact, I thought it breezed by. No, I mean, I do too, but I could see how people who weren't as taken with like, oh, Another long thing of mm. the car is driving and just sort of, as we've said, this is Great a very personal scenes. L.A. movie yeah, for, yes. for Quentin Tarantino. There's a lot of interludes of showing the the joy of these mm-hmm. young and not so young people yes. in cars on the road. Like, I could see how that would get a little yeah, if you for don't, somebody If you else. don't have a heart or a soul. Exactly. Sure. Like Jeff. And, you know, and, and again, depending on, on what Jeff? your thought Jesus. about uh, uh, actors are, you may or may not care about the filming of the show. I did. I loved it. I, I loved it even more the second time because of how well constructed it is. So I, I may well see it a third time. Take a guess at how much money you think Reservoir Dogs has made to date since its release in October of 1992. Off the top of your head. $135 million. $2.8 million. <laughs> really? Yep. Guess how much money his second film, Pulp Fiction, made two years later in 1994, again, well, that's to be. date. I, okay, I'll say uh, $100 million. $107 million. So you went, so 2.8 <laughs> to 107 in your first two films. Because remember, Reservoir Dogs, 1992, this was independent cinema. Totally. It opened in 19 theaters. Yeah. So that was not a widely seen film. Just yeah. imagine, that's, that's incredible. What a meteoric effect that had for relatively little audience totally. involvement. That's I mean, incredible. it makes perfect sense because like you said, it was not our art house theater and stuff like that. And oh, wow, but that's crazy. It's kind of crazy. But you, but of course you and I in the media business, uh, you get a skewed. You do. And also in New York, you get a skewed impression of cultural impact of things. Like oftentimes I, in 2003, mm-hmm. just because of listening to the radio and stuff like that, it's like, oh, American Splendor must be the huge box office hit of the summer. <laughs> It's interesting, you know, in the trailer, it says like, you know, the ninth film. And it is and it is weird to me. I have to, have to be reminded that when I say there are only nine, that's a lot of movies to have had the opportunity sure. to make in any lifetime. But from 1992 to 2019, for there to be nine movies, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Jackie Brown was the one after Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. which was 97, although he did direct a chapter of Four Rooms. 
Jackie Brown was a financial, you know, it did 39 million. That to me, that's my favorite Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. movie. Right. That's an adaptation of a Elmore, Elmore Leonard. Leonard novel. It's the only one he didn't write. I mean, it's no. the only one whose source material he didn't write. And then Kill Bill, pretty big. 70 million for volume one, 66 for volume two. Grindhouse. Death Proof and uh, Planet yeah, Terror. Yeah, with Rodriguez. Didn't yeah. see that. Glorious Bastards, huge hit, 120 million. Not huge, I guess. These were all, this was huge before Marvel. <laughs> like, wow, $120 million, 162 for Django Unchained. Hateful Eight, I wasn't a big fan of. No. And neither was anyone else. It I only, think that's my, that's definitely my It only made favorite. $54 million. Uh, but he's always profitable. You got to give it to the guy. I guess he just has the ability to, he got Final Cut, he gets to do what he wants. Sure. Uh, they was and talking, people like working with him. People enjoy work working with him. With him. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson in the DJ podcast is just like amazed and agog at the Spawn Ranch scene. And he's like, how did you do that? And Tarantino says, well, I budgeted two weeks uh-huh. to be there, just knowing. And then a lot of it was getting on the ground and figuring like, okay, he's got to get from here all the way over to the door of the house. And then he's got to go here. And this guy's got to go there on the horse and come back. And I got to get a movie crane over here. And a lot of it was just figuring out the mechanics of how we're moving the actors and the cars and all this stuff around this space and how we're going to do it. For as strange as it is to listen to him talk about the movies, like remember we've talked about before listening to Spielberg talk? Whatever he wants to sell me, I am buying because he's so good at pitching you. Tarantino is completely the opposite. You listen to him talk, you're like, I'm not giving this guy $100 million. He's a raving lunatic who can't put a sentence together. But then to have this be so disciplined and so meticulous. Comes out of the 90s independent film tradition. Like it doesn't surprise me that he's not profligate, that he is probably at the self-finance and stuff. You know, people who come up through the independent thing are used to, like you can't waste time. And also he's passion for filmmaking. That's why all of the crazy tangents and all of that, don't listen to him. Just look because it all ends up in the final product. All right, Chris, what else you got? Uh, Literally no alternative casting except for Burt Reynolds. Except for Burt. May he rest in peace. Um, Do you have any uh, headlines or rants and raves that you would like to go to? They do not. Uh, The only thing I did want to mention. Oh, I did have a, um, a rant and it's about you. Well, it's not about you. It's about some of the choices you've made in your life. In my life? (laughs) I'll take it. No. I Seriously, Chris, what year is it? 2019, right? 2019. That's right. Now, I know that you are a man, I don't want to say out of time, but you're not someone- I'd say of all time. Yeah. You're not beholden to the trends of any given moment, I think. Like a passing fad or a passing fancy is something that it rolls off your back like water off a duck's back. They will, yes. They come, they go. So can you fucking explain to me why you are doing this oh, on Facebook? Oh, I thought it's sweet. Yeah, I like books. Oh my God. Chris, Chris, I on, can't tell. I also Chris would on, chain letters. Chris on Facebook is actually fucking in his fourth day, although you seem to have skipped day three. You went from day uh, no. two and your next post was day four. I don't know how no. that happened. I don't know. So why you, you can't up, even do it right. Do day th- I did but do basically day he's doing Mrs. the- Galloway. I have accepted a challenge to post seven books that I love, one book per day, no exceptions, no reviews, just covers. I will ask another friend to take up the challenge. Let's promote literacy and knowledge on Facebook. And so Chris is doing this now each day. Fine, I guess Jason, I'll nominate you tomorrow. No, I guess I was going to say, what are you doing, Chris? This is like posting. I hereby revoke the right of Facebook no, to use not. my photos in perpetuity. No, it's absolutely not, because oh that's nonsense. God. This is just what, like, you know, I, what are some books you like? Don't, I like things like that, like to get to know don't people. Don't participate in this and nominate people. Why not? It's not like a big ask. It, it is a big like, ask. It oh, is a big please. ask. Oh it's a huge God. ask. Listen to your books. 
first of all, a week is seven days, and one a day. I mean, that's eight days a seven. week. Hello, the Beatles. Yeah. Okay, you're right. You know what? You did post them in order. It's just that one of your friends shared their day two on your Stepping thing. So on just, my coattails. Oh Some my! Friend. I couldn't believe it when I saw this. Yeah, well. Yeah, Jesus. listen, you should read some of those books. They're good. Good books. Okay. Not that I'm anti-literacy or anything. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> oh, because that promotes literacy so much. I suppose, right. You have to be able to read to get the content hmm. of it anyway. Chris posted it on Facebook. You know what? I guess I'll go out and get that book that he recommended. Yeah. Mrs. Get Dalloway. general theory of life. Mrs. Dalloway doesn't need me to recommend it. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure she's already taken it. I just it find it kind of funny. That's all. Yet. Here you are <laughs> participating in the lamer cul-de-sac of social media. Let's call it that. And it's just kind of hilarious. It's like something somebody's mom does on Facebook. True. But listen, that's our audience. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? We have a young, vibrant, millennial skewing audience. Listen, that Brad Pitt in this movie, he is young and vibrant looking. He looks great. Oh, did I tell you? I'm going as Cliff for Halloween. I already bought the costume. But it's not of you uh, fixing the antenna. No, I won't go shirtless. <laughs> but I did buy the faded champion spark plug t-shirt. Uh-huh. I have the yellow Hawaiian shirt. I have the jeans, the moccasins, and the belt buckle, and the aviator sunglasses. Nice. I just got to figure out that the hair. I got to get a wig for the hair. This is why I think it's a good Halloween costume. 99.9% of the people that I encounter on the street will have no idea what it is. Yeah. But like four dads will go, oh, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> like that guy who's going to be seeing it on his sixth time. Now, I am opening myself up, of course. If a photo gets posted of this outfit that I'm wearing on Halloween on, on social media, of the course. Fact, which one is Brad Pitt? The, first, the first thing that's going to happen is you're no Brad Pitt. I get it. Okay, so save it, all of you. Spend <laughs> the next month salivating, just waiting. Just waiting oh. to do that. I'm uh, not quite the man candy that Brad Pitt is. We all have our different rows to hoe. But you, there it's is literacy. Nothing, but, yeah, it's literacy. It's a, it's a subject close to my heart. Hemingway. Uh, who wrote Mrs. Dalloway? Virginia Woolf. Ah. Uh, yeah. Chris? Hemingway. Af- who's afraid of Hemingway Virginia Hemingway didn't, <laughs> didn't well, write Mrs. Anything. Didn't you? Didn't you have a Hemingway? No, I don't have a Hemingway. Oh, no. that was your friend. That was my friend. Your friend uh, Kaczynski or whatever. <laughs> What's Kaminsky. his name? He seems to like Tarantino as well. He yes. reveres Pulp Fiction. We had a little Facebook I, conversation. I, saw, I yeah. thought about getting in, but I was like, I'm going to yeah. leave it to these two. I just felt that Jackie Brown and this film had a little more heart than a film like Pulp Fiction, which is an ostentatious, showy, amazing pop culture explosion of right. a film, but doesn't really have a lot of heart. There's except no right. heart that gets, you know. <laughs> except for the heart that gets, <laughs> that gets restarted. revived, yes. restarted. All right, ready? One, two, three. <laughs> That does have quite a heart, yes. Um, Go ahead. So another movie that I know you were looking forward to in the upcoming fall season is, of course, The Irishman. I would say looking forward to is an understatement. Well, this... Don't tell me something bad about it. Okay, then I guess I have... Are you serious? You tell me if it's bad or not. So... There was an article where Mickey Rourke told an Italian television thing. He's like, you know, I was supposed to be in that. Like Martin Scorsese really wanted me, but Robert De Niro won't work with me. (laughs) And so he got me blackballed. To which, of course, the people involved in the film were like, we never Never considered (laughs) uh, Mickey Rourke. I don't know what he's talking about. But according to- was this the crazy interview that he gave where the guy like pulled the- Oh, that was the Piers Morgan one. Did you see that? No. I mean, Mickey Rourke used to be my favorite actor. So I would love to see him on Piers Morgan. I see if I can find this quick. You know, he's a boxer. So he's got some interesting facial looks going on. Yeah. Um, 
due to the boxing, not at all due to plastic surgery. Well, I mean, I'm sure that's only to take care of the boxing. So apparently he was on Piers Morgan's show. I see the headline of how his psychiatrist told him to take the wrestler role. Yeah, like, that, yeah I, I, I want to make sure I get the right paid. clip because um, there's a funny thing where he just answers these questions sort of nonsensically. Not that that's hard to do. I was about to say, you know. Uh, it's probably not worth playing. He asks him a question, and he answers about something completely unrelated to the question. Well, because Mickey to Rourke is going up. into politics. I mean, that's that's <laughs> that's his stump speech. Okay, so Mickey Rourke was supposed to be in the movie, but according to everyone involved in the movie, that was never everybody going to except for Mickey Rourke. But this also reminded me that there had been an article a couple of months ago, which I hadn't read, about how the Irishman is probably bullshit. <laughs> In the sense that, you know, it's based on this book called yeah, it's based, I Heard You Paint yes, Houses. Yes, and Which are supposed to be the memoirs of the hitman. Yes, I get Sheeran. it. The source material does not matter. It's the dramatic result that matters. It's well, not presented both. as historical fact. I mean, I don't know if it, how it's presented. And this is one of the things the article was saying. It could be more like Wolf of Wall Street, where there's sure. a difference between the voiceover versus who knows. And Martin Scorsese, I'm sure, is not fooled. Did you hear the Mickey Rourke, classic Mickey Rourke story about Iron Man 2 when he was cast as the villain? Whiplash. Whiplash, Whiplash. Whiplash as many people may know, is well, a pre-existing character. Well, as I was say, in real life, it's a very different character than what they used in Iron Man 2. Whiplash is a pre-existing comic book character that people like you want to see him look the way I do. you know yes. him to look from it's the true. comics. Yes. So Mickey Rourke being Mickey Rourke, and at this specific time, he had not yet re-ingratiated himself. Or in fact, has he ever really fully <laughs> re-ingratiated himself? He's, but he's was, had a bunch of was, bites of the apple. It was post-wrestler, I believe. Okay. And it was kind of like, like, here's a chance. Apparently, the story goes, he had a girlfriend at the time who made leather pants. And he was in his trailer, and the director, John Favreau, learned that there was a problem. What's the problem? Mickey doesn't want to wear the wardrobe that's provided for the character. That's the problem. So John Favreau, it's like one of those things, not everything does the director have to go into the trailer and talk to the actor, but every once in a while, you got to go do that. Sure. You got to say, hey, Mickey, what's going on? Well, it turned out that Mickey didn't want to wear what had been chosen for his character. I think the character had like just gotten out of prison or something. Mm -hmm. And he said, this guy would definitely go and get himself some slick leather pants. <laughs> I don't know what Whiplash wears. I think he wears like prison garb or something, doesn't it? Like ripped up prison I mean in the in stuff? Iron Man 2 he does but in real life no it's like normal superhero supervillain stuff well whatever it was the conversation was no no I want him to wear these custom made leather pants that my girlfriend happened to have made John Favreau saying Mickey they already made the doll <laughs> like you have to wear what the doll has now admittedly like that's not art that's commerce. Sure. And you could imagine being a pure instrument like Mickey Rourke once was and saying, you know, man, fuck that doll. You hired me to portray the character. And this is what my interpretation of the character is, to which the answer is like, we already made the doll. It's already shipped. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the whole thing with this article. I'm excited for Junior to be possibly good in some things coming up. Like, sure. This is the first time in a while that I could say, and I, and I bet you that the Joker appearance is probably pretty limited, but obviously the callback to the Rupert Pupkin character, yes. that bodes very well. And it seems like a good use of De Niro's underused comic timing and ability to send up his own image. And then the Irishman, I mean, my God, I, it can't, I, I, listen, it'll be, I'm going to be, it'll I'm going to be disappointed be. because it can't be as good as I want it to be in my mind. Right. Uh, and you've just now made it a little bit worse. Well, I was going to take one more swipe at it. <laughs> Robert De Niro playing Frank Sheeran in mm -hmm. The Irishman is reciprocity for George C. Scott playing Mussolini. <laughs> <laughs> it's payback. <laughs>
Because I'm trying to think, like, when is the last thing that he was that good he in? Was really good That's in? That's a good question. Let's look. Really good. Was he in Silver Linings? Silver Lining Playbook? Yeah. Which I, a movie I did not like. A lot of people But he was, but I do remember liking him they in They love it, it. Yeah, that would be the last one that I would Wizard of be. Lies, Bernie Madoff TV movie. Didn't see The Comedian. Didn't see Hands of Stone. Didn't see Dirty Grandpa. Uh, you didn't see Dirty Grandpa. <laughs> I did see Joy. Uh, he's okay. I didn't see Hands of Stone either, but I remember reading about the real person that it's based on, and it That's sounded like it would have been a Boom Boom Mancini story. story? It's some boxer. Oh, Roberto Duran. Sorry. Jeez, you have to go back a ways. Silver Linings Playbook, he got a lot of props for that. I, it's in some ways a lighter movie than like when you think of his best stuff. I thought it was like, like a he heavy better, movie. I mean, Silver it was Playbook? Not a, No? And he also plays a supporting character with a little bit of comic relief, mm. but he makes a real character out of it. I'm going to say... Machete? No. Mm. I think I'm actually going to have to go all the way to meet the parents. That was Unless you think he's great and analyze that. But I mean, honestly, 15 minutes, the score, stop me when you hear something great. Showtime, City by the Sea, analyze that, Godsend, Shark Tale, Meet the Fockers. But listen, he gets a lot of, you know, he gets a lot of guff for, for that, for, for basically since 2000, really not being sort in a memorable. Sort of giving up? <laughs> is it giving up or is it just working? I, it could be. I mean, I'm, look, I'm sure he, if he wanted to do, he could do anything. Yeah, it's it's an interesting career. It's it's I, I'd say Michael Michael Caine's career has more hits on it than De Niro's career. But the problem with De Niro is he's got like a handful of things that are just yeah. can never equal them ever. So Michael Caine never really had that. He never had a raging bull. Yeah, I mean, he never had a Godfather he had a hand. But other than that, but like Michael Caine is still great. He's great in the Batman yeah. movies. He's he can turn in amazing performances even though he famously, you know, will work for a pool. Which brings us back and forth to the movie that we're talking about, to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, it's there is something, <laughs> there is some overlap there. It's just a job can either be a reason to do a crappy job yes. of it, or it means I'm a professional who's going to bring some heart and soul to something that might be le- like oh, Jaws look. 3D, for I mean, example. <laughs> there's a lot of reasons to do anything, but maybe there's only three reasons to take any job. The money, the money, or the money. <laughs> you know what? Hey, it's your life. You do, you but do what you I look want. at this though. I mean, we're coming into it. The Joker, The Irishman. I don't know the War with Grandpa. I hope that's not a a Grandpa sequel. <laughs> Dirty Grandpa. <laughs> Anything else? Did you want to? No. You now watch that you've you ruined or? The Irishman for me, there's nothing else oh, that I have to live for. <laughs> there's still about endlessness is coming. What's that? I saw a man who had gone wrong. Jag såg en kvinna som inte hade förmåga att känna skam. Ja, det är inte fantastiskt ändå. Lite då. Allt. Allt. Allt är fantastiskt. Ja, ja. Jag såg en ung man som ännu inte hade mött kärleken. Vad ska man göra när man har förlorat sin tro? Terrence Malick has a new movie coming out. Bong Joon-ho. So there's plenty to look forward to. Great.
This is me looking forward. <laughs> it looks like you're looking down, actually. <laughs> down at your shoes. Shall we move on to latchkey? Shall we? Hello? Yes, Latchkey TV, quickly. Today we're mixing it up a little bit. Today we're just going through some highlights on the pay TV movie guide yeah. of the November 1985 TV guide. Bo Brummel, 1954. Historical romance about the dandy who introduced trousers to Regency England. Fine. <laughs> it makes sense. Somebody had to introduce them. So it's like, right, Mr. Granger, tell me what your pitch again for the movie is. Well, you see, it's about the introduction of trousers into Regency England. Sold! <laughs> It's a passion project of mine. I've always been quite That's how the Brits were doing it. Trousers. In America, how about Beyond the Reef from 1981? Oh, Partial nudity, sexy. adult yep. themes, a boy, and his shark. Okay. Again, <laughs> I, I was a little bit surprised. Yes. But, uh, but okay, I'll see where this goes. This was a great movie. I remember this in the 80s. Electric Dreams. You ever see that? An unusual love triangle is constructed when an architect buys a computer with emotional proclivities and they vie for the same girl. That sounds awesome. Yep. Who's in it? Lenny Van Dolan and Virginia Madsen and Maxwell Caulfield. Oh! This is actually a movie I remember being good, but it could have also been 1978 <laughs> and I was young. The Fury. Do you remember this? It's a De Palma movie. Kirk Douglas as a father seeking to rescue his telepathic son from an exploitative government agency. John Gassavetes, Amy Irving, Andrew Stevens, and Kirk Douglas. That sounds awesome. I don't know if it is good or not. It sounds like Firestarter. Oh, that's a good movie. Drew yeah. Barrymore? Yeah. Hot Dog the movie. You remember that, Chris? Yes! About skiing, right? Sophomoric tale of rivalry amongst overgrown adolescents at a skiing competition in Squaw Valley. You had me at sophomoric. And sexual situations. I could have told you that. Uh, how about Oh God, You Devil? Remember the Oh God series when that was a thing? Like yes. making a movie about God starring lovable old George Burns? Like, who else? This reminds me of what you were telling us yesterday about the sequels to Smoking the Band yeah. and how kind of Baroque <laughs> they got with the plots. I think we entered this. This must be the third or fourth one. Oh God, You Devil. George Burns does double duty as the droll deity and the devious prince of darkness, both battling for the soul of a struggling songwriter, played by Ted Wass. Ted Wass was in De Palma's um, movie, whatchamacallit? He was in Soap. He was in Blossom. Oh, maybe I'm not thinking of Work right Mom, time. Last Man Standing, no. Undateable. Who's the guy who was in the De Palma movie with, like, the mirrors? That's not Ted Wass. Hold on. De Palma movie with the mirrors? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a great Brian De Palma movie. I mean, when I say great, it's a Brian De Palma movie. That's its own cinematic universe. Um, no, I'm talking about... Phantom of the Paradise? No. Oh. Although I know you like that. Dress to Kill. Ah. Uh, Dress to Kill, it's not Ted Wass, it's who? Michael Caine. No, no, sorry. I'm not talking about Dress to Kill. <laughs> I'm talking about uh, Body Double. That's what I'm talking uh, about. Remember that? Uh, yeah. Craig Wasson, not Ted Wass, Craig Wasson. That's a great movie. Well, That's, I think I was trying to pitch that for this show. Were you? At one point. Doing a De Palma? I would like to do a De Palma, just at his trashiest, which I think this is probably. How about at his best to. and do Blowout? Well, this could be a little bit of both. This is true. I want some trash. You do want some trash. The trash is good. That's pretty trashy. Anyway, speaking of Sally Field, as we were yesterday, yes. uh, Places in the Heart. Aww. She won an Oscar for her spunky portrait of a Texas farm widow struggling to weather the depression. <laughs> why are you laughing? I don't know why. It's just like, yeah, it's the depression. Of course you're going to have to weather it. How about Race for the Yankee Zephyr? Deer Hunters versus an unscrupulous businessman in pursuit of a fortune in gold. Starring Ken Wall and Leslie Ann Warren. Hmm. That sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds like for. an old-fashioned picture. Why don't they make them like that anymore? Yeah. 
which is I'm sure what people were saying in 85. Now, this is a movie that Rick, what's his name, would have made from Quentin Tarantino's uh-huh. film. She, Italian U.S., 1983. Sandal Bergman is tough. She's mean. She's a post-nuclear Amazon in this loose updating of H. Ryder Haggard's fable about three male wayfarers waylaid by wayward woman. Wow, that's some great alliteration. That is a lot of alliteration, TV Guide writer. That Uh, sounds really fun. And then again, just also, I don't know what was going on in Italy in 1985, but here's another Italian one. Warrior of the Lost World. Robert Ginty has the title role in this post-nuclear saga of a rebellion against a despot played, of course, by... Max von Sydow. Donald Pleasance. Oh, so close. Have known. That's what we have for Latchkey TV. Well, that means you're going to have a great Saturday night watching whichever of those are on. Yes. So until next week, this one's for all you Hollywood watchers out there, whether you're drawn by the films, the gossip, the human drama, or the desire to put a lens on the human condition, the artistry, the technical innovation, or most likely the schadenfreude. You see, this is my life. It always will be. Thank you for listening to this episode of Full Cast and Crew. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, drop us a line. You can email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at at fullcastandcrew or on Instagram at fullcastandcrew or, of course, find the podcast on Facebook. And if you really, really enjoyed it, take a screenshot of your favorite episode on your podcast player and forward it to a friend so they can subscribe and figure out what you're always laughing about. And if you didn't enjoy it, I don't know, drop us a line anyway. I can take it.